This podcast episode may contain themes and content that could offend, trigger or alarm some people. The details for Lifeline and 1800RESPECT can be found in the show notes for this episode. Welcome to our podcast, Bad, it's all about crime, brought to you by Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival and the City of Sydney. I'm Suzanne Leal. And I'm Andy Muir, and each month we'll be exploring the big questions in crime and crime writing. Subscribe to our podcast, then jump onto the Bad All About Crime book club page on Facebook to be part of the conversation. And thanks for listening. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which our festival takes place and pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past and present. Welcome to It's All About Crime. I'm Suzanne Leal. Before I turned to writing, I was a criminal lawyer, so perhaps it's no coincidence that my novels, The Deceptions and The Teacher's Secret, explore crime and allegations of criminal behaviour. And I'm Andy Muir. I'm a screenwriter and novelist. Crime got under my skin writing and researching the Underbelly series before I turned to crime fiction and my novels Something for Nothing and Hiding to Nothing. Today we're joined by writers Caroline Overington and Catherine Kovacic. Caroline Overington is one of Australia's most successful writers and journalists. She has written 14 books, both crime fiction and true crime, and both historical and contemporary. Amongst the awards she's won are the Walkley Award for Investigative Journalism and the Davitt Award for Crime Writing. Today we'll be talking to her about her novel, The Ones You Trust, and her true crime book, Missing William Tyrrell. Catherine Kovacic is a former veterinarian turned art historian who works in a wide variety of museums, galleries and historic houses. She's the author of three novels in the Alex Clayton art mystery series, The Portrait of Molly Dean, Painting in the Shadows and The Shifting Landscape. Recently, she's turned to true crime with the book The Schoolgirl Strangler, in which she investigates the murder of four young girls in Victoria in the 1930s. Welcome to you both. Caroline, let's talk about your book, Missing William Tyrrell. William Tyrrell, of course, is that little boy made famous by the fact that when he was three years old, he went missing, dressed in a Spider-Man suit. Caroline, how did you come to be the one reporting on Well, the you're case? quite right to say that I started out reporting it. That's true. I was working for the Australian newspaper and this William's story it perplexed me because how does a three-year-old boy disappear? I mean, I'm a parent and I know you're a parent and many of our listeners will be parents and we all know that children can go missing briefly. We know that. We know that we can be at the supermarket and they're in the aisle with you one minute and then you turn around and they're gone or, or you're on the beach and suddenly you look where they were building a sandcastle and, and they're not there and you run around and you're frantic and you start yelling and you call for help and people come and, and you search around until you find them and then that's the moment, isn't it? You find them. Um, and in this particular case, William had been running around a garden of a house that he was visiting and then he was gone. And it it wasn't one of those situations where people were able to say what had happened. There was no witnesses to say, oh, I saw a car that nobody said, for example, oh, I heard, I heard a strange scream. There was absolutely nothing. It was like he had disappeared into thin air. And I thought to myself that, well, firstly, that how does that happen? Because if that can happen to him, then it can happen to anyone and to anyone's child. And I also thought... We can't stop looking because if somebody has taken him and that seems to be what the police think, then that person is still in our community. He may still have William. William may yet be alive, in which case we have no business stopping the search for him. 
And if he's not alive, if he's dead, is it still as important to find then out? Then that person is emboldened, isn't he? I've been out to the scene where William disappeared from and I went with a criminal psychologist because I wanted to find out what kind of person might take William. And she gave me a very chilling description of somebody who just happened to be in that street for some other reason. He didn't go there to take William because nobody knew that William would be there. He was just visiting. He didn't live there. He saw William playing around in the garden. And although he was there for another reason, maybe to go bushwhacking because it's a very bush area, maybe to to steal something from someone's backyard, maybe to collect scrap metal for sale, he was able to change gears in his mind in an instant and think, I am going to take that child. And then to do it, to bundle William into the car, to drive off without even squealing the wheels, without even making a sound, no hurry at all. Well, you're talking about somebody who has done it before and therefore you're talking about somebody who will do it again. And you're convinced that someone unknown has taken No, I'm not convinced. But if that is the story, if that is what happened and none of us know, if that is the story, then we all need to be very wary of the community we live in because that kind of thing is possible. If that isn't what happened then we need to know the truth because we can't allow parents to go around thinking, A, that such things are possible, easy to pull off, not likely to be solved, and at some point we'll stop looking for the perpetrator. That's a really dangerous message for Australian parents. You've said we need to be mindful because there may be such a perpetrator in our society. Now, the town we're talking about is Kendall. Why would that person be in Kendall? Do you have any... You know, I think that's an excellent question because Kendall is a tiny town. The population at the time that William went missing was just a touch over a thousand people, which makes me even more furious in a way about why the crime was not solved because there are two mobile phone towers in Kendall. You should be able to download the data from all of those towers and you should therefore be able to tell who was in the town. And if they have a good reason to be in the town, you should be able to to rule them out of the crime. And if somebody's there who shouldn't be there, then what were they doing and what is their alibi, that kind of thing. There isn't very much CCTV in Kendall. There was a little bit at the Kendall Tennis Club. There's a little – but it was – you know, the disappearance of William Tyrrell took place in a, in, in, at a time – just moments before the widespread use of CCTV at things like ATMs, supermarkets, bicycle helmets, motorcycle helmets, people now have dashboard cams. You know, the idea that there is no CCTV of William being taken or riding along in a car is to me so frustrating. But there were other clues that were perhaps missed. Kendall is is described by many people who live there as a beautiful country town. They have a music festival and they have a community centre, they have an op shop, they have, you know, they're wonderful people who have lived there for a very long time. But in the surrounding area, there are a lot of uh, known pedophiles, there are a lot of known sex offenders, there are a lot of, it's a community where there's a lot of ice, a lot of, a lot of drug abuse. So we're not necessarily dealing, like in a lot of um, small country towns on the surface are very beautiful, but there is sometimes an underbelly. In these cases that make us frustrated, as you said, and make us worried about the answer, there is often a need to find a solution quickly. In this case, Bill Spedding was seen to be that solution. 
Can you tell me about how Bill Spedding came to be accused of this crime and what happened? Yes, I can. So uh, we, we now know that he was not involved in the disappearance of William Tyrrell, but Bill, William Spedding or Bill Spedding um, was a local white goods repairman and he had been to the house that William disappeared from a couple of days before to try to fix the washing machine. And then on the morning that William went missing, about an hour before he went missing, his foster mum called Bill Spedding and said, hey, the washing machine is still broken here. When are you going to come and fix it? And so police thought, okay, well, let's take a look at Bill Spedding. I mean, he drives a van because he's a white goods repairman. We know that he was in the street before, so maybe he had come back to the street to fix the machine. That sounds like something that could be a lead. And they chased that lead and they kept chasing it for years. They they uh, they raided his house. They turned over a woodpile on his property. They did forensics on his car. They... Uh, they announced to the media really that he was a person of interest in the case and made people think this is the guy. Now that destroyed his life. It destroyed his life. He, he was no longer able to work in the community. Nobody would have him come around to fix their fridge or their washing machine. You know, people abused him in the street. They abused his wife in, in the street. He lost the house that he was renting. He had some children living with him at the time that he was taking care of and they were taken away. So the family was completely smashed. And I think in some ways it's a good reminder that, of course, police have to chase leads. And this looked like a good one. A, a person who was visiting the street in a van, maybe on the day, that looks like a lead that you would obviously follow. But you have to be very careful that you don't develop what's known as tunnel vision with a particular suspect and chase them because the real perpetrator is getting away. And of course, it's now gone from a police investigation to a coronial inquest. And my understanding is the coroner, Harriet Graham, is in charge of it. What's happening with that and has anything well, new come out? it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because a coronial inquest, most people, most people think the coroner, oh, okay, someone's dead. You know, that's how we think of the coroner, right? They run autopsies. They're in charge of um, investigations into corpses, that kinds of thing. There is no evidence that William Tyrrell is dead. We have never seen a hair or a shoe or a scrap of that, that Spider-Man suit anywhere. There is no evidence that he's dead. But the coroner can also look at missing person cases and try to make – a reasonable conclusion that he may well be dead. So, for example, he's never been to the dentist. He's never been a, a, used his passport. A passport has never been issued in his name. He's never been to a doctor, used a Medicare card. He's never been enrolled in any school. They have run uh, pictures of him as he might look now at the age of not three but four, five, six, seven. No, no child has ever been enrolled in an Australian school who looked like that. So it, it seems likely to me that, that the coroner will at the end of her inquiry, declare that William is likely dead. And that enables several things to happen, a death certificate to be issued, for example, a grave perhaps. You could establish perhaps a grave. But to my mind, the more important role is to try to establish what went wrong in the investigation. Why didn't we find him? Why didn't we find out what happened? How can we make sure that that doesn't happen again? And also, is it still possible to solve this crime? I mean, there are still people out there who know something and and sometimes their relationships with other people are breaking down. So is there somebody's wife knows something, somebody's girlfriend knows something, maybe somebody's died and the widow is left carrying this secret and doesn't want to go to the grave with it on their own conscience. I don't think that the end of the coronial inquiry means that it's time to give up. Does the end of the coronial inquest or the inc coronial inquiry 
signal a time for you to be able to leave the case or is this a case that will follow oh, you? Oh, I will never, ever give up wondering. Never. I will never give up wondering and I always want to know. And, and I feel more importantly that William wants us to know. William wants us to know. William is out there. I feel his presence very strongly and so do hundreds of people who are invested in this case who, who never met him. I never got the chance to meet him. I've seen him running along in videos but I, I feel his presence around me all the time and thousands of people do because he waits for us to find him. A three-year-old boy does not belong in the ether, in, in nowhere, in, in, in some kind of limbo. He belongs with the people who loved him he belongs with his families he, and, and he calls for us to find an answer. It's not right to me that we simply say, William disappeared, we don't know what happened and that's the end of it. I mean, and what if it was your child? And what if it was my child? What if it was anyone's child? We need an answer for, for ourselves but also for William. That's a fascinating way to end this conversation about missing William Tyrrell. Caroline also writes about a missing child in her novel, The Ones You Trust. And Andy will be talking to Caroline about this later. But first, he's chatting with Catherine Kovacic about her novel, The Shifting Landscape. Catherine, The Shifting Landscape, uh, it's the third book in your crime fiction series featuring Alex Clayton. And I'm I am actually a huge fan of this um, of this series. I really love Alex and John and Hogarth. Um, but for people who haven't uh, encountered the series yet, how would you kind of introduce them to it? Alex is um, she's an, an art dealer, but she's not sort of a, a sort of a South Yarra or you know Wallara pearls and black suit kind of art dealer. She's she's sort of at the scraggy end of the of the uh, the industry. So uh, what Alex does is basically she lives by her wits. She has to trust her gut instincts and trust her eye for art and go out and find um, what's called the sleepers, the, the stuff that's basically really good quality art, but um, for reasons including damage, dirt, uh, fake signatures, those sorts of things, uh, are masquerading as something cheap. So Alex buys stuff cheap and hopes to sell it up the line, and that's how she she makes a living. So those qualities of uh of trusting your gut and, and trusting what your eye is seeing are actually really good qualities to have in a sleuth. So she's the key protagonist, but she's uh, ably assisted by her best friend, John Porter, who is a, an art conservator. And um, and at her side is her, well, not always, but her, her dog Hogarth, who is an Irish wolfhound, um, large and slightly ferocious looking, but really quite friendly, which is perhaps a way of describing Alex herself too. So of course, the art world being what it is, has lots of uh, grubby little corners uh, where lots of crime can take place. So everything from fakes and forgeries to uh, murder and art heists because you've got to have a heist at some point when you're talking about art. You certainly do. It's kind of like Antiques Roadshow but with a bit of crime, isn't it? Wow. Now, there's a great setting for a crime book, isn't it? There's so many potential suspects at one of those things and all those people who, you know, have potentially got the family heirloom there and, who knows who could be lurking in that crowd? That's right. That's right. Which is kind of a nice little introduction to this story because it does centre around a um, a painting, a long-lost painting or an unknown painting. Um, talk us about that one. So in Alex's uh, latest adventure, The Shifting Landscape, she travels to the Western District of Victoria to value a collection for the Macmillan family. And they're a, an old squatocratic family, you know, several generations of, of pastoralists. 
Uh, and they've just had stuff hanging on the walls for, for generations, you know, things that were collected at the height of the wool boom and through the 50s. And it's always been there. So they, they just think of it as the decoration on the walls. They don't really know what it's worth. But now they want to find out. So she and Hogarth head out there to have a look and they find um, a few a few valuable things, but one painting in particular um, that uh, speaks to the history of the family and also the history of the uh, the Indigenous people dispossessed from that land. And um, she calls John out to join her to, to give his opinion on some conservation issues. But before he can arrive, the patriarch of the family dies under mysterious circumstances. And then that painting goes missing. And Alex and John are about to leave and, and get back to Melbourne and basically leave this very dysfunctional family to their own devices. But then a toddler goes missing, the youngest member of the family, and Alex's dog also disappears. So they join searchers scouring the countryside, and Alex knows that the answer to the mystery is somehow involved with the landscape, but it's a matter of whether she can unravel all that before someone else dies. And it's really interesting because that landscape, that sort of western district of Victoria, it's, it is a bit of a hotbed for issues around colonialism. And this painting that's been found, it's by... Von Von Gerard, who some people may or may not know, but you know, very famous kind of colonial painter of of sort of bucolic scenes of Victoria and, and the sort of very early days of Victoria and, and that. But in this painting, he has a, um, a some indigenous people, uh, which sort of challenges some of the ideas that are held around that sort of period of, of Australia's history. Can you go into that at all? Yeah, well, Von Gerard, he, he did travel through the Western District and he painted, I guess we'd call them, perhaps a way to describe them as house portraits, so house paintings, pictures of these, these squatocratic empires with, you know, the house stuck in the vast landscape, speaking to the power of, of the owner of all that land effectively. Um, and he, while he was sympathetic to the Indigenous people, he didn't tend to include them in those sorts of paintings. Other artists did, like Robert Dowling. He has several paintings that include uh, Indigenous people with the, the white settlers, effectively, but always painted in a way that sort of incorporated them into that, that Western society, a very patriarchal sort of look how generous we've been allowing you to remain on the land. So in creating this painting, um, which is, is completely fictitious for the story, this, this is just speaks to the dispossession. So in this painting, there is uh, an Indigenous family, a group of people in the foreground, um, some of them looking towards the viewer and some of them looking back at the land and the house that, that is now on their country. And so it's a, it's a comment by the artist because, in effect, he would have been painting uh, for a patron, for the owner of the house. But he's put in this, this comment about what, what this really means, that this house is in this landscape now. And so did you kind of um, find yourself having to do a lot of research around these these issues for the book or was it something that you were already well-versed in? No, I particularly wanted to research that for the Western District because, as you said, that is a, a particular hotbed. There were some some very violent conflicts there and the Indigenous people were, were persecuted quite mercilessly through that landscape. Um, and they have an incredibly old and ancient aquaculture system there, which was was part of what interested me there. So, um, and this was put on the um, the UNESCO World Heritage List in 2019. And um, this, this series of channels and weirs at Budge Bim uh, was carved by the Indigenous people out of the, the larval landscape, the lava flow. And effectively, it's a, it's a system for trapping, growing uh, and breeding um, the local eels. And it's over 6,000 years old. So it's 
literally the oldest uh, existing aquaculture system in the world. And there are also um, dwellings or the ruins of dwellings associated with it. So it speaks to the permanence of the Indigenous people in that landscape uh, and, and shows how invested they were in that countryside. And so for, you know, people to have been not just pushed off that, but, but you know, persecuted, killed, slaughtered in many instances, um, and yet this heritage is still there. And I think it, it speaks to this conflict that we have with, you know, who who owns this land and who belongs there. Um, and these are issues that sort of come up, you know, generally in crime fiction thing, you know, there's something about possession or who's going to inherit, but we don't look at this sort of this larger continuum of inheritance and and who belongs there. Yeah, it's almost kind of a, you're sort of starting a sort of a, a conversation about decolonisation in some ways, which is kind of a, a big topic to put into a, um, a crime fiction work. It's um it's that that is that is not my story to tell, but it is definitely an idea that I wanted to I wanted to introduce because I think it's it's something that we we need to be considering. And I felt I I couldn't set a story in that country in that part of Australia without considering those issues because they're they're central to that landscape. Mm, yeah, very much so. And so, was there anything in particular that you found most difficult or challenging about about this this work? I, I think well, particularly for me the obviously the research around this, um, speaking to uh, Indigenous people about what it feels like to be on country and separated from that country. So that was something that that obviously I wanted to explore and make sure that I dealt with appropriately. And so I had people looking at my work for that. Um, the art was easy for me there. So obviously as, a, as an art dealer, Alex always has to have some sort of arty reason to go where she's going. And Von Gerard made the Western District a perfect fit. And also that, that idea of family dynasties sat really well in that part of the countryside. But travelling, so I'm, I, like to, I like to know my locations. So um, this was all obviously pre-COVID. So um, lots of trips to that area just to, just to basically walk and be in that, that landscape myself and to, to get a feel for what it feels like to be there and, and all those little details, you know, what, what the air smells like and what you can hear if you're on a quiet country road because it's never completely silent. So all those little bits that, that sort of make up the, I was going to say the canvas, but that would be an art book pun. So the, the background of, of the story, um, I, I find sort of getting into that country is really important for me. Yeah, that's right. And, and that's a really important thing about um, crime fiction as well, where the landscape is a character all of its own. And that's kind of across many works. Yeah, and I, I certainly felt that for for that area of the Western District because it has that the volcanic landscape. So I think that's that sort of to me is really interesting because that means you know vugs and caves and and holes, but just also that that potential that the hidden what's hidden beneath the surface layer. It's just it's it's another sort of element to that sort of whole crime thing, isn't it? That that there's the potential for violence beneath the surface. Mm. Well, that actually might be a nice little segue into um, into Carolyn's book as well, because uh, the ones you trust. Uh, this is this is uh, Carolyn's ninth novel. It's about a an, another missing child, the daughter of the much loved breakfast host, television breakfast host. So we're thinking, you know, Sunrise and all those things. Emma Cardwell, and so this book really is about underlying tensions as you know, well, isn't so it? that's so interesting because actually The Ones You Trust was written before I wrote about William Tyrrell. So I must have had in mind somehow the idea of a missing child even before I knew that I was going to write about William, which was really interesting now that you've pointed it out. What I thought with The Ones You Trust is actually what is more usual and more common 
when a child goes missing, which is it is almost always somebody known to the family. In fact, they say that the random snatching of a child off the street is a once-in-a-generation crime. They're not mucking around when they say that. You get one every 10 or 20 years. A child might be taken out of the bedroom window or taken off a street corner. It almost never happens, which is why police don't assume that that's what's happened. And so what happened in William's case, of course, was when he went missing from the front yard, they assumed, well, he's visiting here, he's probably lost, let's go and search in the bush, look in the drains, look in the dams, look around the cemetery where he might have run, maybe he chased a butterfly, because it doesn't cross their mind that it could be a random snatch. And that's exactly right in the ones you trust. Of course, the first thing the police do when they turn up at the childcare centre and the little girl is not there. And so they immediately assume, well, somebody else must have picked her up. Now, hopefully that's an accident. Hopefully that's really rushed parents who are like, no, I said you were going to get her. No, weren't you were going to get her. No, I was going to get her. No, oh my goodness, we've left her there, which is kind of how the book opens. Both parents come home and they realise no one's picked her up. And so they think, uh-oh, better go and get her. And when they get to the childcare centre, it's all locked up. The police come to open the door. They assume they'll find her asleep among the soft toys or in a cot or something, but she's not there. Now, the first assumption that police will make, if neither of the parents have her, it'll be someone known to them. Almost always, 98, 99% of the time. In fact, the Criminal Investigation Bureau in the United States has done a study on this, on exactly where you find a child that has gone missing. And in somewhere between 95 and 98% of cases, somebody who knows the child is responsible, usually the closest adult, so either the mother or the father, depending on who was in charge at the time. And when you're looking for the body of a missing child, in something like 85% of cases, it's within a 1,000 metres of the last place they were seen. They don't get taken very far. They tend to get hidden in attics, roof spaces, boots of cars, almost always in, in, in an area you could throw a rock, you'd find them which is really interesting. When a child goes missing, you almost always know A, who it was and B, where you're going to find them. And so what I wanted to do in this particular novel was create a situation where the reader can examine all of the suspects. Is the mother telling the truth? Is the father telling the truth? Is the nanny telling the truth? Are the other siblings telling the truth? What about other people who have babysat in the past? What about other mothers from the childcare centre? It did seem like there were a lot of different possibilities. Yeah, it's it, and it just kind of resonated so much with um with the William Tyrrell case. It sort of, it it really was just tapping into the sort of same almost zeitgeist. And the opening, you know, we, we often talk about crime books. You know, the opening is what grabs us. And you know, I'm not a parent, but the ones you trust, I thought, well, this is terrifying. This kind of idea of going to pick up your child or your child is just not there and no one knows. And it's not like they're under your care, they're under someone else's care. And in care. some ways, I think that's why um, both Catherine, who we've, we've been hearing from, and myself have crossed that that divide between fiction and non-fiction because very often things that happen in real life 
can become a fictional story, but also sometimes the true crime is just as interesting in some ways more so. And I know, Catherine, you've written both and I've written both because they both feel so real. I mean, this this particular story, how many times have you read in the news about a child going missing from a childcare centre? It happens way more often than we think because the staff there are underpaid, everybody's rushed, mum's rushing home to get home from work, dad's not often in charge of the pickup, but sometimes might be, in which case he's more likely to, to forget. Um, childcare centres have got so many kids and not enough staff and they get locked up without people properly checking. Children can be very quiet when they want to be. So it to me, it read like the kind of situation that not only could happen but in fact often happens yeah, no definitely it felt very um very real and um and so because you have written true crime and you've written fiction one of the challenges with life is that it doesn't actually follow a plot and so how do you kind of do you find which one do you prefer? I don't know that I have a preference but I think you're right sometimes I because I work as a journalist as well sometimes I come across a story in real life and I think to myself <laughs> If I wrote that, if I put that in a book, the editor would say, oh, come on, Caroline, that that can't possibly happen. I mean, sometimes I'm astounded by Mm. the details in real life crime. And so often the problem is with when you're writing fiction is to make it exciting enough, you know, make it exciting enough. One thing I've never really liked doing in fiction is the group, what's kind of the grisly side. You know, there are some Australian writers who are really excellent at writing um, scenes that which people, when which people are killed, often violently, in which corpses are uncovered. I mean, uh, one of my favourite writers is Karen Slaughter and in the opening of her new book, a girl is jogging along a bush path and somebody comes and lands a hammer in the back of her head all, all the way up to the to the handle. And and she writes it in a way that you can you can read it without <laughs> without needing to reach for a bucket. But I, I'm not very good at that at that grisly side of thing. So uh, in some ways reporting is easier because you you do sanitise for the viewer. In fiction you're not, you're not supposed to but I, I don't find it easy to do. And what about plotting though? Well, the plotting is interesting. Sometimes you have the answer before you get to the end. Um, sometimes I write a book and I think I know how this is going to end and I just have to figure out how I'm going to get there. And, of course, when you're writing um, nonfiction, you know the answer but not in all its details. I mean writing William Tyrrell is really difficult because I'm thinking to myself I don't know what happened. I don't know. I think I have a theory. I know other people are very strong in their theories. There are some people who would, you know, put a gun to their head and you, they would tell you what they think happened. But how do you write a book without telling the reader what happened, letting the reader draw their own conclusions about a case that isn't solved? Of course, Catherine, that's not the case in The Schoolgirl Strangler because you knew what happened. Before we talk more about the uh, the book itself, can you give a little bit of a backdrop as to what interested you in this case enough to write a whole book about it? Sure. Um, I first came across this case several years ago when I was actually doing research for the first Alex Clayton, which has uh, part of its setting in 1930s Melbourne and is based on a, an unsolved true crime. And I was looking at crime in general in Melbourne in that period and policing in Melbourne in that period, which is a, probably a, a book of it, into and of itself. And I came across these crimes and it's a, it was a series of murders. Um, and I think what intrigued me most, Caroline was just saying, you know, that um, most children that disappear aren't taken by a stranger. And yet here in 1930s Melbourne, we had four little girls aged six to 16 who all disappeared and were all taken by this one person. And of course, police did exactly what Caroline said they would do. They they had 
they didn't know they were dealing with a serial killer. They didn't really have a concept of serial killers in 1930s. That term was decades away from, from coming into practice. And so they looked at families. They looked at acquaintances. They looked at the boy next door. Um, all those really obvious sort of suspects because they really they really were way out of their depth and they couldn't couldn't really conceive of, of how to approach this case. So the policing interested me. Um, the girls themselves interested me, and it was their names that really sort of stuck in my head because, of course, when I first saw that case, I was doing something completely different, and I just kind of filed it away. And and it wasn't until several years later that I realised I still had not only the names but their their dates of death and their ages and all these little details sitting in my head. And I thought, well, I have to look at this a bit more and see see what I can do with it. And the more I looked at it, the more I found about these, you know, the the way the police had really bungled the investigation. And I think the really interesting thing for for this for me was um, the way this person operated, the way he could make these girls basically vanish um, from from really public places. And of course, there was no CCTV or anything like that. But he literally managed to abduct one of these little girls on public transport over about a ten kilometre distance. And there were really no decent witnesses to speak of, and and that that really intrigued me. The, this this person that was behind this, um, and how the police ultimately came to capture him. You've spoken a lot about the perpetrator, who we don't, and we don't find out who that perpetrator is until the second half of the book. Uh, there's many things that are successful about this really compelling book. One of them is the voice you give to the victims. Uh, recently in the media, there's been a lot of criticism of the dead girl who doesn't speak or the victim that doesn't speak. And in this book, you've really given a life to these four girls whose life lives were all very short. Can you introduce us to Mina Griffiths? Sure. Mina Griffiths was, um, was the first victim and she came from a large family. Um, she was 12 years old at the time and she'd gone to the park on a Saturday afternoon, a November Saturday afternoon, with some of her siblings, um, three younger sisters, to play. And um, this was something that they did quite regularly. The park was the 10-minute walk away. Um, and that was, you know, that was a safe world then. So 10 minutes from home, four of the siblings together, playing with some other children. And then a stranger approached Mina at one point and asked her if she would go a message, to run a message for him, and she refused. And he asked again. And by this stage, her sisters had come up and, um, and Joyce, the, the next oldest who was there, asked if she could go too. And the stranger said, no, two can't go. And for some reason, Mina agreed to, to do this errand. And, and I think that, again, probably speaks to society at the time that, that clearly this was a reasonably presentable adult. And if an adult asks you to do something, um, generally as a child, that was what you did. So, she walked off with this man with her siblings also following along and um, and they worked walked from Faulkner Park in South Yarra through down to Commercial Road. So this is just sort of through the, through the back streets. Commercial Road's a, a fairly major road. And at that point, the stranger gave each of Mina's sisters a penny each to go into the shop and buy some lollies, which they did. And when they came out, Mina and the stranger had disappeared. And that was really... While there were some sort of uh, uncorroborated sightings of her along the way, that was really the last time she was seen alive. And her body was found the next day in an abandoned house nearly 10 kilometres away from where she vanished. Um, 
I think one of the really interesting things about about Mina is is the fact that Joyce, the second youngest sister, was asked to give a description of this stranger, and the description she gave was really something out of childhood nightmares and and proved to be quite inaccurate. But the police released it at the time, and it speaks of a man you know who walks with a limp and who has sores and scars over his face and one black eye and blackened teeth and teeth missing and a greasy hat. And just this real sort of nightmare image. And, and this poor little girl, Joyce, the, we're talking about Mina, but I have to talk about Joyce too because the trauma for her of being there and, and that happening to her sister. And then to be questioned by police because they, you know, they didn't sort of have the protections that we have for children in those sorts of situations these days. So she was questioned by police. She was ultimately asked to look at a lineup of men uh, to say, was one of these the man that, that took your sister away? But Joyce's description of this, this nightmare figure that, that took her sister away, and yet, of course, when police released this description, you would expect no one would have seen this man with a, with a small girl in a green coat. And yet several witnesses did come forward. Of course, the description subsequently proved to be quite inaccurate. But um, that's, that's really a, a much bigger part of the story. You've spoken about the horror of this young girl going missing in 1930s at a time where, rightly or wrongly, it was seen that society was safe for children. And obviously there was a desire, as in the case of missing of, of William Tyrrell, to have this case solved. Sometimes um, the haste in wanting to have a case solved leads to injustice. And we've seen that in the case of William Tyrrell with Bill Spedding. There's another William who um, has a large role in your book called William McMahon. Robert McMahon. <laughs> Tell me about Robert McMahon. <laughs> Robert McMahon, um, he he was the suspect. So um, police did, obviously they looked at the family. The family had been out, you know, all night once they'd realised that, that Mina was missing. You know, she hadn't come home when she was supposed to. Joyce told her father about this errand. They waited a little bit longer because sometimes, you know, she met friends in the park. She pay, played a bit later. When that didn't happen, the family was out scouring the streets and they notified the police and they were phoning hospitals. Nothing. But when police started to cast a wider net, when Mina's body was found and they were looking for their perpetrator, they came up with Robert McMahon uh, and there were suggestions that they'd been given a tip by an ex-con. But Robert McMahon had only recently been released from prison, two weeks before Mina disappeared. And um, he had been locked up for um, an assault on a young girl, which I should say that he had always denied being responsible for, but he'd just spent seven years in jail for that and he'd only just gotten out. So this was one of the things that police had done once they'd eliminated that immediate family and social circle. They started looking at potential perpetrators and so they looked at who was on their sex offenders list, who was on their list for attacking women and children and who had recently been released from prison. And they came up with the name Robert McMahon. Now, McMahon had actually left Melbourne within several days of, of being his release from prison, and he'd gone up uh, into New South Wales, up to Linton. And he had actually been there at the time that the crime was committed. But initially, he didn't realise how much trouble he was in. When police first came looking for him, they'd put out a description to other police stations and let them know that they were looking for this man and he was arrested in Linton and held on a spurious charge like camping in the wrong place or, you know, trapping on trapping on someone's property. 
and Melbourne detectives rushed up and questioned him and brought him back to Melbourne. And they put him in a lineup uh, and asked some of these witnesses who said that they'd seen Mina uh, with a man and also Joyce, the younger sister, and they said, is this the man you saw? And every single witness said no. Police released Robert McMahon and he returned to New South Wales. He advised them that he would be going to stay with his family, uh, his brother's family in Sydney. And so two weeks later, the police came and arrested him again and they brought him back to Melbourne. And this time when they put him in front of the witnesses, all of them except for one man said that, that he was the person that they had seen with Mina. So Robert McMahon was charged with her murder and he conducted his own defence. He did uh, ask for a lawyer, but the lawyer in question had just gone away for Christmas holidays and didn't get the letter. And Robert McMahon was adamant that he had been in New South Wales and he gave the police a very detailed description of his movements. People he had seen, although he didn't have correct names because he hadn't realised he'd need an alibi, but he said, you know, I was here, I did this, I spoke to this person, we had a conversation about that. There was an auction in progress. Uh, there was, a, you know, the Salvation Army was there. I rode in a truck with these young men. I rode with an insurance agent. The police um, made a few phone calls and said, well, we can't seem to speak to anyone who can say that they've seen you. The police actually made a, made a bit of a pantomime out of it too, mid-questioning him. Uh, there'd be a knock on the door and a sergeant would stick his head in and say, you know, call for you, detective. And the detective would step outside and have a very loud conversation about, uh-huh, I see, what's that? His alibi's completely fallen apart, right, and then come back in and start the questioning again. Robert McMahon maintained his innocence. In the courtroom, uh, he was allowed to question Joyce, this man who supposedly had abducted and murdered her sister, was allowed to sit directly in front of her and, and ask her, you know, am I the man you saw? And Joyce said, yes. And he said, but you last time you said I wasn't. And she said, well, last time you had a beard and this time you don't and now I'm sure. Robert McMahon uh, um, was charged and uh, it looked like he was going to basically be hanged for the crime. But then because the case had had such wide coverage, it was an Australia-wide thing, some of those people up in Linton actually saw Robert McMahon's photographs in the paper and one of them went to a local lawyer and said, I saw him, I spoke to him, he was here. And, um, and the local lawyer actually also thought that he'd seen this man and so he wrote an urgent letter to uh, police ministers and the government of Victoria and said, we've seen him, he was here, his alibi is true. And it was really only through the diligence of the public prosecutor who was, you know, turned out to be a good guy and said we need to investigate this case a bit more that McMahon's alibi was finally explored and um, the prosecutor and McMahon and several detectives actually went up to Linton and all of these people, this great line of at least a dozen people were, were brought out and told their stories one by one about I saw him here, I drove him there and Robert McMahon broke down in tears. He'd been vindicated and um, they were forced to drop all charges against him uh, and they gave him a ticket, train ticket back to Sydney for his trouble. And, of course, it's back to basics for the investigation and, meanwhile, more girls are being targeted. The book you've written, Catherine, is so easy to read. Um, it, it reads not like a novel but it reads in a way that makes you not want to leave it alone and not rest until you've finished it. 
but I'm imagining that the research involved material that wasn't quite so easy to read and didn't have quite so linear a um, attraction. What what sort of research did you do and how hard was it to muscle all that research into a book that is so uh, accessible? I um, I spent a lot of time in the public records office and um, it's it's interesting because sometimes it's a it's an absolute gold mine and, and everything just, you know, falls into line. And sometimes you, you just can't find the information you want, you know, particularly with older files, things get muddled together, um, you know, cases that cross over and particularly this, the perpetrator had several alibis earlier on before he got to, before he got to murdering and was just, you know, on other crimes. So there was mixes in the files there. Uh, and some of the, the really old material, you know, hadn't, was just in boxes. So you had to sort of, wade through various other cases to fi- hopefully find what you needed. But some of these files hadn't been opened. You know, there were looking looking at Robert McMahon's criminal history, um, things that were were knotted up and, you know, that I needed to get public records staff to cut the knots for me. Um, and everything was everything was quite quite jumbled even in the main files because of course once police realised they were dealing with one killer and multiple murders, bits and pieces had kind of ended up everywhere as they were sort of bringing these cases together. So it for me, I, I, I like to have research done before I really start writing, even if it's just sort of having skimmed through things. So I had lots of digital files and mounds of paper everywhere by the time I'd sort of got to that stage. Um, but I could see the, see where the threads went through the case. And, and I always knew that I wanted to, to write this book with, with the girls, with the victims as the focus. So that really, I already had that structure there and it was, it was teasing apart the elements of their cases, but then also going to other sources to find those other bits. So, um, local historians, school historians, uh, archives interstate, even, um, births, deaths and marriages overseas to sort of track down some of those family histories and, and all those little bits and pieces that, that go to make up the story of those families and those girls all started to come into it as well. And, of course, for me, um, tracing the, some of the descendants too, um, big families in some cases, so it's never possible to, to get to everybody. But um, it was interesting then to find how much these stories had been hidden away in these families. So. Um, in one case, a, you know, a, a memory and a story very closely protected and guarded and rightly so. In another case, a family that, that all they knew was that they'd had an aunt who died when she was a young girl and didn't know until they were adults themselves, you know, well into sort of the, the 1970s that she'd, she'd been murdered and, and really knowing very little about the story itself. Um, even finding a descendant of one of the men who was falsely accused of one of these crimes and and finding out the the wider impacts that it had had on on his life going forward because he was only 18 at the time of that case so finding the way to pull those threads together and keep the story moving but at the same time not not over not overwhelm readers with with that mound of paper that I was sort of facing in public records and in my own study because there were all those little extra bits, and particularly once you get down to sort of the, the legal side of things, um, arguments backwards and forwards and conversation that needed to, to be there to some extent, but perhaps not when you get right down to the nitpicking things. So, so giving you that story without giving you the, the overwhelming detail that, that really, I think, loses the girls in, in that 
just that that sort of mound of, of legalese and paper. Thanks, Catherine. So, Caroline, what Catherine said is um, important in writing a book like this is to tell the story without being lost in the mound of paperwork. Did that strike a chord with absolutely. you? Absolutely. I absolutely know exactly what she means. Um, I spent some time in the public records office here in New South Wales. I know Catherine, I think, is talking about Victoria. And my understanding is that Victoria are really well organised. So, um, And New South Wales... Honestly, you can go out there and, and just as Catherine just described it, um, you open the files and it's not like everything is just there waiting for you to discover it. It's a complete shambles. Everything is, is upside down and the wrong way around and you can't find what you're looking for and you have too much of the other thing that you, that you need. And this was particularly true when I was writing Last Woman Hanged, which was about a woman who was, who was hanged for a crime of murder. The files but dated back to the 1900s. Um, they were meticulous record keepers. They really were. You have to admire them. But it, it isn't like you go there and then you just find all of the material and slot it into your book. Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. And there's always those wonderful sort of serendipitous discoveries that are really exciting where you kind of find, you know, someone's signature or, you know, something on, on that you completely weren't expecting to find but suddenly it makes it just so much more Yes, weird. and you have to be careful to remember what belongs in your book and what is just delightful because – uh, so, for example, the the hangman at the time, or or the coroner at the time, who declared that um, that some of Louisa Collins's victims had been murdered, um, went a little nutty after she was hanged because that was often the case. You send someone to the gallows; it doesn't not affect you. Of course, it affects you. Um, and he died, and he left a widow, and she was left without support. And so she wrote a letter to the governor saying, "This case really affected my husband. He's now dead. I have no way of supporting myself." Really delightful to find that and to, and to get lodged in your brain the idea that the people who are involved in a hanging are, are impacted by the hanging too. But does it belong in the book? Because if you do every single one of those tiny little things that you find, you, you, you do need to keep the reader, well, you need to keep your, your story moving for the reader. And that's a nice little alleyway that perhaps you're not going to be able to go down. That's right. That actually raises a really interesting point as well. Like, do do either of you sort of have to decompress after you've been dealing with this material for a long time? Is there some sort of way that you can, you know, put this aside? Because you are both sort of investigating some really horrific material. I, I certainly had days in public records where I had to just put put the files back on the shelf and say, "I'm coming back tomorrow," because it's you just you reach that point where you you really just need to go out and walk in fresh air and just think about something else for a while. It's um, you, you can't not think about it because I think when, when you're in the middle of a story like that, the girls, the victims are always with you. So you're, you're trying to tell their story, but yes, you need to, to sort of put aside the detail um, and put, put that clinical hat on. I think it, it, in many ways, sometimes it sort of reminds me of, of practicing veterinary medicine or medicine that you have to be able to put that, that sort of divide in place and just deal with the material in front of you and then later on you can you can analyze your own feelings and thoughts about yeah, it. I thought what Susan um, said before was very astute the idea that um, we we've had too much media over the past two centuries in particular about um, women who are silent who are voiceless we, we don't often think about the victims and in this case they're children but they are often women and that is true in sexual assault as well not just in the case of murder um, and I think what Catherine's done with this book is amazing because you really do get the idea that these were for children. This is not just um, a great story to be told. This is not just a thrilling crime story for people to enjoy. It is that. 
but they they were real. They were they were girls who were full of potential and ripe with possibility, who had lives and dreams, and and they were cut short. And that and that is true of William too. And and I felt that very strongly when I was. Um, investigating Louise's hanging because she too had children and towards the very end the the two smallest of them were taken to the governor's mansion to plead for their mother's life and and he wouldn't come out to see them and I had lodged in my brain an image of two little little kids in their button-up shoes and and going to those big foreboding set of gates and and knocking and not being allowed access and not being allowed to say you know don't don't do this commute this sentence just leave her alive for us um in particular because all of the evidence was circumstantial and and the case had not in my view been proved so i agree with catherine and also with with what suzanne said that yes that that you're very alive to the fact that you are dealing with real people and they deserve our respect what's interesting in each of your books, at least, uh, Missing William Tyrrell and The Schoolgirl Strangler, is there almost mirror images in that one is about a case that was solved and solved to everyone's satisfaction and one is about an ongoing case that's not solved. So my question first to you, Catherine, is would you have written this book had the cases not been solved? That's a really interesting question. I think because of the policing aspects as well, I think it was a story that that was should have been told. I think again, the girls. It's not just about recognizing the girls because I think you you know there there has to be a bigger reason to write the story, and I think looking at the policing aspect of that makes it a story that's worth telling because it was it was only after I think 1938 that police in Victoria actually started to get proper detective training. Um, until then, it was just a case of you rose through the ranks from uniform and when you got to a certain point, that was the next promotion and away you went. Uh, and it seemed to be very much a case of, you know, perhaps knocking on a few doors, maybe knocking the occasional heads together. And that was, you know, you, you, there was no real reason for these guys to, to, to be promoted except that that was where they got to in their careers. And, and I think that was a really interesting element and watching how that policing changed after that and watching how the police changed during the course of this investigation. Um, I think at the third murder, you can see almost, I think perhaps it's fair to say the fear in the police, the way they suddenly amp up what they're doing um, when they realise that that this person is back again and is still killing. So I think in many ways it, it would have been a story worth telling even if they hadn't stumbled on the answer in the end. And I think, again, just for those girls too, to have their their names remembered and to have their lives short though they were remembered because, as Caroline said, these were real girls with potential and they have families and they have descendants now who, who still feel that loss. And, and that's, that's a story worth knowing. And Caroline... For me, it seems the momentum for your book, Missing William Tyrrell, really is that momentum of the child who is to be found but is not yet to be found. So my question is, had this case been solved before you came to write it, would you have still written this book? You know, I don't know the answer to that question. I really don't. It's such a good question because I, I wrote the book because I believe the case can be solved. And not only that, I believe the case will be solved. It just, it, it to my mind... Um, 
the the universe is tilted slightly in the wrong direction when something like this happens and we don't find the answer. I feel like everything is slightly off kilter and and that's and that's not good for the world. It needs to right itself. And so I believe that if we don't find out what happened to William, then William will make himself known to us. And in the same way as happened with Azaria Chamberlain, do you remember many years later, the matinee jacket just turned up. She made herself known to us. And in the case of Jaden Lesky in Victoria too, he was missing. And then his body floated to the surface of the dam. He had been put into a, a plastic bag, weighted down and buried, and he, he floated himself to the surface of the dam. So I believe that William will make himself known to us, that the crime will be solved. And the importance of the book was to say, here is what we know. This is the evidence uncorrupted by mistakes made early on. Not not to lay blame. I was never interested in saying, well, the police mucked this up or they should have done this differently or if only we'd done this or that. It was simply to say, here is the evidence. Let's look at it again because he definitely waits for us. He definitely waits to be found. And the crime is solvable. That's a very sobering and interesting note to end on. Can I thank our guests, Caroline Overington and Catherine Kovacic, for your time, for your energy and for your works. Thank you very much. And thanks, of course, to Andy. Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the All About Crime podcast from Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. If you'd like to be part of the crime conversation, head over to Facebook and join our Bad All About Crime book club. For more information about the podcast, the festival and our other events, subscribe to our website, www.badsydney.com. You can also follow us on Instagram. If you love listening to All About Crime, please subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating and review in your favourite podcast app so other people can discover us too. The books featured in this episode are available from our online bookseller, partner Booktopia, you can find a direct link to the Booktopia Bad All About Crime page on this episode's show notes. The views, opinions and attitudes expressed in this episode of All About Crime are those of the participants and not those of Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. Until the next thrilling episode, keep reading and talking crime. <laughs>